Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Recoup along with my partner in crime, Marcus. Buddy, every now and then we come across a topic that's just too big to do with one episode. That's true. And this subject or topic that we are going to be discussing today will probably end up in three episodes because of the At least. Rich <laughs> timeline. Maybe even four because of some of the craziness that happened. Every single phase of this band is magical. It's mystical. It's... And important. It's very. relevant to the times and essential for listening to progressive music. There's rock and roll. There's jazz. There's soul. There's classical and the worked. essence of progressive rock right there. All those different elements and a few more twists and turns that make each band within the genre unique to themselves. And that's the case when we're talking about, yes, from the beginnings to the edge on the imbalance history of rock and roll. For both of us, there's relearning. And for you, I know you've been diving deep into some books and reading and stuff. Uh, it's learning because when I was a kid who was absorbing this, who was changing from AM to FM because of Roundabout and Yes, you know, you were just a kid. It would be years before I would catch up to the earliest stuff from the band, but we want to go back to the earliest days of Yes and, and talk about it a little bit here on The Imbalance History. I remember hearing Roundabout. I remember hearing some of those early songs on not only AOR radio, but again, older brothers and sisters of friends who were into the music and playing it for us. And I can tell you there were many times as a wee lad, I was up reading my Hardy Boy books, listening to FM radio and songs like Roundabout and Seen All Good People came on the radio and it made me stop reading for a while because I would listen to those songs because they were so captivating. They put stories in your mind that made you stop and think about the words and what John was singing about, not just the prettiness of it. Trying to figure out how it was all being put together and how it all worked was mind-blowing at the time. Trying to hear the individual sounds on that little FM radio in my room was mm -hmm. challenging. Like when you first try to listen to jazz, right? Because jazz has all these different things going on, right? Yeah. There's a lot of 
jazz in this. What we're really talking about this week is the start of a story of friends in music who, being supremely talented, find new paths to take, opening doors to others, later returning or not, all the while the main thing, yes, goes on. And we really get started talking about the band with two men that I feel are the core of yes, vocalist John Anderson and bassist Chris Squire. Those two really define what the band was going to be about and all the other parts that would change all worked around them for a long time before their partnership later in our story, not in this week's episode, the two of them would break that bond. But back in the sixties, man, let's jump in that time machine and go back to 1966, 67. There's all kinds of shit going on in London, right? You've got all these guys who are about to cross paths. You have John Anderson, who left his small town, wanted to explore the world, joined the Warriors, ended up uh, jumping over to Munich to play clubs and spearhead the band called Gentle Party. He assumed the identity Hans Christian after his Munich epiphany. EMI called him back to London. And then later, he was introduced to Chris Squire, who was working at this amazing store called Boozy and Hawks, which sold Rickenbacker basses, which... Conveniently. John Entwistle played, which... Chris Squire realized he wasn't going to become a singer and wanted to play an instrument and knew he had to get his hands on one, and because he worked there, he could get a discount, probably eventually got his hands on one. Funny that at the beginning, it took all that, because that would be his acts of choice all his life, with the long neck of the Rickenbacker out there while he worked it. Oh, man, did he work it. Oh, yeah, did he work it. Man, I've been watching the videos of them playing live and then listening to their music and just watching his hands move so gracefully up and down the bass. It's a work of art. They saw themselves as artists, many of them coming from art school backgrounds, music school backgrounds, including Rick Wakeman, who would come into the story here in this episode. Eventually, artists being artists and musicians being same, we'll find others who have the same goals and ideas to at least talk about, if not in the case of musicians, play with. And that's what starts to happen. Now, originally, Chris Squire gets invited to join this group called Maple Greer's Toy Shop. It really wasn't his group. It was the the guitarist group, Clyde Bailey and uh, Bob Hager and this guy named Peter Banks, who was a guitar player. And I know I checked into it. They did play at the Marquee. That is true. They opened up for a lot of great acts at the Marquee. And but they didn't really acts. get the kind of excitement that you need to get a label's attention at that point. There was some creative juices flowing from the beginning. As soon as uh, they all meet, they, they go to Chris Squire's place and they write a song, Sweetness, which would work itself into the early repertoire of Yes. She puts the sweetness
of those things where the chemistry kind of grew out of that and those evenings. And eventually, Hager is replaced by the legendary Bill Bruford, who answered an ad famously a Melody Maker. Like, so many things seem to happen. It's just, well, we're looking for a drummer. Have you got it? And they heard this guy. And man, were they blown away. Do you know what the audition song was that they played? I do not, so I suppose you're going to tell me, my friend. I am. They did a cover of Wilson Pickett's in the Midnight Hour. And John Anderson was not keen on Bill Bruford at first. It took Chris Squire to convince him to give Bill Bruford a shot. I want to give you a tidbit to add to your tidbits. I love tidbit adding to tidbits. The first Yes gig of record is August 3rd, 1968 at a place called the East Mercy Youth Camp on Mercy Island in England. And that very song from Wilson Pickett is in the set list at their very first performance. And when you look at some of the early performances as they become yes and start performing regularly at the Marquee Club, you notice that it starts out with a lot of covers, which is what they've been working on as a band to hone their craft as they began to form and write songs. You know, it's worth noting here, the Marquee is famously known for, you know, birthing the stones and that, that rock and roll blues scene in London, but the Marquee continued throughout the decades to spawn bands and yes played a lot of their earliest gigs they were in regular rotation at the marquee in 1968 some of the people that they opened up for include cream janice joplin the Jimi hendrix experience there was a moment when sly stone didn't show up for a show Pete Townsend and uh, uh, who is it from uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer? Uh, Keith Carl- Emerson. Keith Emerson were in the crowd and they were expecting Sly Stone and got yes and were blown away. What? Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you, there were a lot of things, uh, streams that were crossing because people were meeting. We just we just talked about a bunch of it and you've got to get your head around some of that. As you see the forces of nature that are starting to come together, uh, that includes Tony Kay. He was already a, a member of a band. He was in Johnny Taylor's Star Combo, and he was also in the Federals. And the thing about Tony Kay is that's the name he is known by, but he's actually Anthony John Selvage. And all these guys were all born in the same pocket, if you will, right around the, the mid-40s. So... They were all getting through school. They were all showing their creative side all around the same time and melding in so many ways and places that they could. And they all found out they loved Simon and Garfunkel. I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies in chess, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And I guess that led to commonality with the Beatles, which would be part of their set list as well early on. Bill Bruford, in leading up to where he got to, played with some Italian band in Rome called Paper Blitz and then did a very brief stint with Savoy Brown.
watching all of these members in the progressive scene move from band to band until they found the right fit with the right band members is pretty impressive because that's pretty much it too right it really seems that way and like bill bruford moving in and around etc and uh peter banks moving in and around and everybody else coming in and out and joining all these bands but they going also, in and around the lake yeah it's it's wild <laughs> They were competitive with each other, but they ended up yes. grabbing each other's band members, too. It was and they're wild. Both. Well, let's talk about Peter Banks. Peter William Brock Banks is actually what his birth name was. And again, born in the mid-40s there in 47. Everybody knew him as Peter Banks. Uh, he'd been in bands, uh, a band called the Nighthawks in the 60s. Another band that people knew in those days locally was called the Devil's Disciples. He was with them. And that band recorded a couple sides, including a Graham Goldman song, For Your Love, which was going to become a hit for the Yardbirds, but it wasn't quite there yet. Wow. It wasn't until like a year later the Yardbirds would have a hit. But that would stay in their repertoire, by the way. Now, this is when it starts to get kind of you know, like freaky, okay? About a year after that, Peter Banks joins the Syndicats, and he replaces their guitarist, Ray Fenwick, who some people know. Ray himself had replaced this kid named Steve Howe in that band, The Syndicates. And, of course, we all know that down the line, uh, not too far, Steve Howe would later replace Peter Banks in Yes. This is how, how incestuous it was. I think that before Peter Banks joined Mabel Greer's Toy Shop, they had tried to talk to Steve Howe about joining, and he was kind of like, nah, I'm doing my own thing right now. It's called a scene, and there was that kind of thing going on, and a lot of the people that would intersect were in these bands you've never heard of before, but as you start to develop and move down the line, other bands that you do know, uh, like King Crimson and some of the others begin to intersect with other branches of the progressive tree, like Genesis, and, and we'll, we'll get into all of it. But here we are. You got Peter Banks, who is kind of a hot shot, right? And he's in there, and he's working with Chris Squire. And their first band was called The Sin, S-Y-N, like synthesized. And aside from being a member of Yes on the first two albums, Banks is very essential to this because of his activity involving Chris Squire also brings contact points with John Anderson and Bill Bruford and gets them on their path to becoming a band and working together. And that's where they meet the kid named Tony Kay. And he's pretty damn good too. And that is the beginning of them getting the attention they probably deserved earlier but couldn't get from Atlantic Records, and it would lead to the band Yes becoming a recording artist. I wonder if they thought much about that. Did they know that they were going to be such an influential artist for rock music on Atlantic Records, the label of Ray Charles? Yeah, I don't think they had any idea, and I don't think they had any intention of that. I think they just wanted to play their music, record it, and make it sound as amazing as possible, and show that you can do anything in the rock and roll spectrum. You know what? They really were taking a lot of chances, Marcus, and they did. They showed exactly that, that if you had the guts and fortitude and you really were committed to it, you could make anything you wanted happen, happen, especially as recording expanded to 24 tracks and then even bigger, right? 
Oh, yeah. Sound was evolving at a huge rate, and Yes was one of those bands who took advantage of that technological growth. In the days before they became Yes, the band was a product of shuffling players, trying to find the right vibe, right? Those first couple records become the template for their progressive bass sound and all of their success, really. The sequence of albums, beginning with the Yes album, followed by Fragile and Close to the Edge, can be credited with a lot of the creation of airplay for long-form songs on FMAOR because of the strength of the parts and collectively. Long songs didn't seem so long after Yes made the scene. Now, while Yes would start out with Tony Kay and he would be their keyboard player through their third album, the Yes album, for the last couple albums that we are talking about in this episode about the early days of Yes, Rick Wakeman would be in the keyboard spot and he joins them for the Fragile album and tour. Also, of course, for Close to the Edge. And... I think it's a big turning point for the band, as good as they've been to this point, and they've been very good. When Rick joins the band, things start to change, and in a very positive manner for them. Another cool aspect of the Rick Wakeman story is the fact that he played on some of the early David Bowie music, Space Oddity, some of that, and he was making a lot of noise. He was asked to join the Spiders from Mars, join the Straubs, played with them on the From the Witchwood album. Soon after, joined Yes, because Yes was totally into his sound. And he was totally in demand there. When you think about it, you're a session guy, you're getting a reputation. He was supposed to go to like the Royal College of Music or something, and he chose to go rock and roll. I never really got the exact reason for the change, but these things just happen in rock and roll. Wait a minute, Marcus, I see you've gotten a quick, quick response to this from the research department. Man, they're quick today. Yeah, the research department came onto this one quickly. Basically, uh, Tony K was only a one-style keyboard player and didn't want to expand with the Mellotron and some of the other synthesizers. Oh. and So that means it seems like his prog vision was a little different moving forward than the rest of the band. If you listen to the Yes album especially, his keyboard playing is more like a powerful, like John Lord's overdriven Hammond sound. More in that area in a lot of cases, but not entirely. And that's why I think a lot of the fans were surprised, but then we heard Rick. Oh my God. That's so funny that you mentioned John Lord's power because I was listening to some of those early Yes records and I was like, man, I hear a lot of John Lord style in here and you can hear that sound throughout it. And then on that early album, Survival kind of gave us a feel for what Yes was going to evolve into because it seems like that was their most progressive track on that album. Sunshine is creeping in Really know 
but those two as keyboard players on those albums really they contributed so much of the feels you can't underestimate what tony case feels men to the early base and foundation of yes's sound his style and his sound are definitely important in the development and growth of yes but it was kind of an art collective where people would come and go more often and thinking of the the model of the Beatles and the Stones and all that stuff, it would be outrageous to think that people would allow that or that it could be thought of or done that way. But there you are. Well, Peter Banks ends up leaving and a guy that he replaced the guy who replaced the guy who replaced him <laughs> comes in to replace Peter in uh, Stephen James Howe, the professor, I call him, because he's unexpectedly uh, funny because he comes across very dry. I've interviewed him and in, and I think I mentioned this in the Annie Haslam in, interview where he really kind of put, put me in my place a little bit and I really felt like a kid in class, but that's his way of being silly. And, uh, I, I learned that and I learned a lot about him as we got ready for this episode, a guy that I've met and known, uh, through the years and interviewed a number of times, how he really changed the feel a little bit, even though there's bits of that uh, Banks feel in the work that he does, it's really his sound, the guitar sound, and he makes it his own for what? The last 50 plus years. So, you know, it's really his chair and nobody's taking it away. Let me just say that about the great Steve Howe and all the things he's done in his career, we could do a whole episode about. Uh, but being a part of Yes is <laughs> so important. Behind all the artsy-fartsy fun that's going on downstage, Marcus in the back, the drummer has to make sense of it all, pull it together, and make it all work. No small feat, right? Well, the guy who answered that Melody Maker ad, Bill Bruford, he comes in and uh, he establishes something about the yes sound in the rhythm area. Love comes to you. I'm a huge fan of Bill Bruford. He's there for all five of the studio albums that we're discussing on this episode. And if you want to hear anything about what I'm talking about, uh, just go listen to any one of the first five Yes albums. Yes, Time and a Word, the Yes album, Fragile, and Close to the Edge. And Bruford's there for all of them. But as they're getting ready to do the Close to the Edge tour, he announces that he's leaving the band to join King Crimson. And he has some tracks on the Yes Songs live album, the first ever Yes live album. But the rest of those yeoman duties go to Alan White, who joins the band and has been now the drummer in Yes more years than anybody. He joins for the Close to the Edge tour. So his playing is the backbone of that album, Yes Songs. And a quick Bill Bruford note. 
A quote that I found very fascinating about him was that they said that he is a field drummer. He doesn't have to play a lot to express an immense amount, which I thought very fascinating because it's a little bit different of a style than Alan White. Yes, and that's why I think a lot of people were surprised at first. If you want to talk style points, Bill's probably closer to Billy, as in Cobham, as far as his speed and accuracy and feels. Maybe closer to Neil Peart than a lot of the other rock drummers in the progressive area. Well, I think uh, John DeJohnette was one of Bill Bruford's big influences as One of the all-time great drummers. He could play and did play with everybody, man. Jack was incredible. Go listen to some of his music, guys. Well, Alan White gets on the yes train there, and like I said before, he goes with them through pretty much everything. There's a period where he leaves for a while, but his career is pretty amazing before he even meets these guys and signs on, right? He he was John Lennon's house drummer. This is karma's gonna get you Gonna knock you right in the head You better get yourself together He played on uh, All Things Must Pass with uh, George Harrison, and he, he was in studios and in sessions with so many amazing people that we could do a whole episode about sidecar guys, and Alan White could get his own episode about just what the work that he did. His work with Lennon includes like the Plastic Ono Band for crying out loud. It's him and John and Klaus Vorman, you know? Or to be sought out to play with those musicians by these great musicians who are well-known. What's your resume, Alan? Well, I played with John Lennon. You're in. <laughs> I mean, really, come on. Now. But, you know, and Alan is, uh, he, he fit in perfectly with the gang, so to speak, and is one of the nicest guys in rock. Uh, I've, I've run into him through the years. In fact, there's a picture in Hershey, PA in the 80s. Ah, that's uh, one or two phases down the road, I guess, in our story of, yes, from the beginnings to the edge here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. All this talking about one of my favorite bands ever is making me very thirsty, Marcus. I'm parched too. So what do you say? We step into Crooked Eye or Jamie's House of Music and grab a pint. Well, it gets to be the holiday season, Marcus. You know, you start thinking about gathering with friends and in a lot of cases over a pint or over Pennsylvania distilled spirits or some wine or cider. Gee, where could we go? How about our favorite? It's Crooked Eye Brewery. Right in the heart of Hatboro. It's a great place to share memories with friends and hear live music as well. Speaking of live music, you can find out who's coming to play when on their Facebook page. And as always, the beers are continually being updated. As well as your favorites on tap at Crooked Eye. Right there in the heart of Hatboro and in the heart of Delco out by you. Yeah, a few miles down the road from me at Jamie's House of Music, where you can see live music and grab a pint of your favorite Crooked Eye beer. And if you're going into the brewery location in Hatboro and you have a Crooked Eye fan in your life, stop by, have a pint, buy a gift card for the holidays, and stock up on Crooked Eye merchandise. We know the holidays are always crazy, so if you want to slow down, make sure you stop by and make it Crooked Eye.
It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Yes, beginnings to the edge. We're close to the edge anyway. <laughs> I'm Ray along with Marcus, and I don't think either one of us are DNA-encoded familiar with these first two albums from Yes that we were discussing before we came on and a lot in the last few days. I'm definitely not very familiar with these first two albums. I've heard songs from them throughout the right. years here and there, but overall, no. I will say the third and the fourth album are really where my indoctrination and my uh, learning about Yes began. So that's the Yes album and Fragile, which, by the way, the largest group I think of anyone uh, of any age group uh, came in around that time or kind of picked up on the band's music from those two albums later. Absolutely. And I think Close to the Edge did, was a big hit. I know some people probably had a hard time understanding the difference in direction, but it was still a great album that I got to hear a lot of songs on AOR. Let's go back to that debut album. It was just called Yes, and it was their name logo in a conversation bubble, right? Like a cartoon bubble. And I remember a couple songs from that, probably from hearing on MMR, uh, which was the station that primarily in Philadelphia had been playing them uh, until the rock stations began to multiply. And I remember the song, especially uh, I See You. I see you. That one really stuck with me. And when I remember seeing Yes later in the 70s for the first time, I remember thinking that's one that I really remember from hearing them played on the radio. And uh, another song is Looking Around, really grabbed me too. And then on the second album, uh, Time and a Word, the title track was really like a breakthrough AOR single for them if they had those in, in 1971, two, three. In the morning when you rise, do you open up your eyes? Uh, every little thing, their version of the Beatles really got them a lot of attention, and it was a familiar song. So a lot of us Yes Babies were latching onto it, if you follow. Something I just noticed from listening in the last few days is the song Every Days. It's the combination of Tony Kaye's keyboards versus the strings, the beautiful tension in there that I never really noticed before. But I really noticed something I already kind of knew, which is these first two albums are the template for everything Yes is and continues to be through the decades, through 50 years plus now. And going back to these first two Yes albums has been more of a learning experience than a relearning experience for me. 
And I found, I found some very interesting aspects to these albums, and I took some notes. I really enjoyed Beyond and Before, and I think it was a great way to start the album off as it flowed through the rest of the album. And I really liked the flow of the album. I thought their Yardbirds cover of uh, I See You was really fascinating and very interesting. Their Every Little Thing Beatles cover was interesting as well. I was kind of taken back by it going, whoa, what an interesting interpretation. And then hearing Survival and being like, wow, this is really kind of an idea or a or a, a forethought of what Yes was going to become the most on that first album and then jumping into Time and a Word, which I did. Originally, I listened to the albums in reverse order, and then I Very listened to them. Very of you, I must say. <laughs> and I had to do it because it really gave me a better understanding, I think, of their music and their musical growth. And then being able to listen to them in order also gave me a cool perspective. The YouTube videos from the second album, Time and a Word, I thought were great because they really gave you a feel for what they were trying to do. I really liked the opening track, No Opportunity Necessary, No Experience Needed. I thought that was a cool tune. It's a Richie Havens song, and I didn't know that until afterwards. Then I loved the video on YouTube for then. It's also got a uh, King Crimson style of prog sound. I heard some of the King Crimson stuff in there as well. And then every days, I also heard some of those uh, King Crimson sounds or similarities. But I also noticed that Squire's bass was huge in every days. And the Astral Traveler, I felt, really was what Yes was going to become as well. And to hear this early stuff and how it would evolve into who they would become and you mentioned Chris Squire. He's the one thread that goes throughout from the first album through them all. Uh, that sound. You mentioned the Rickenbacker and how he became enamored of it because of the ox. It's not often that that sound is so essentially elemental to a band's combined audio sound, their, their output. But, and yes, it was that essential with Chris because of the way he wielded it and the way that it fit into everything else that was going on. Not unlike jazz, I might add. Jazz. Jazz. That's right. We love that jazz. Jazz. Here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Um, We get around to that third album, and it's that big song that everybody knows. I've seen all good people. Everybody talks about uh, Starship Trooper. The thing that I really love about the Yes album, Marcus, is the way they placed, and some of it is something we discussed with Andy Haslam a little bit, the way that you have to place things to make sides of albums work. But if you listen to a venture from the Yes album, and then the way it flows into perpetual change. It's one of those great moments in progressive rock history, and it's right there on the third album from Yes. The third album, Starship Trooper, I love the fact that 
working at WMMR when we do like the A to Z, we play that song quite in a the few. mix. Yep. There are quite a few songs, and when we do long song weekends, we throw Starship Trooper in there, and it's one of those songs I think that really excites people because it's so beautiful. Uh, I've seen all good people. The A, your move, and the B, all good people is how it's broken up in the album notes and the liner notes. And I think when you see these breakups, it shows their classical influence. Yes. Very much so because they've broken these songs into pieces. I find that very interesting as well. But yet you see the albums from front to back flow magnificently all the way through. The form you talk about comes to perfection on Close to the Edge. Before they get there, they make a change. They bring in Rick Wakeman on Fragile. It's at this point that a young kid knows press to the radio, Marcus, <laughs> switches from AM to FM because Ed Jockey and Michael Tierson are playing the long, full-length version of Roundabout on WMMR. So I said, well, fuck this. I want to hear that. roundabout yes the turning point for me and and it's also a turning point in the story because they have a huge radio hit and at the same time they sell a ton of albums both between prog and rock and roll they expanded their audience and i'm curious was roundabout played on top 40 radio at that yes. time as well so they crossed over to the top 40 yes. crowd I think that was unheard of. Only the Moody Blues had done so before or at that time. You know, that's what was going on, and that's how they caught my attention was the edit of Roundabout. And I was talking to somebody about how much I loved it at school, and they were like, well, you should listen to the full-length version. And I'm like, what? What's a full-length version? <laughs> From one of those early versions of me going, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It had a, a profound influence on my direction and me falling in love with being on FM radio and wanting to be all back there in 1972. Guess what? In my mind, the best is yet to come. It really is because the way that they'd come together and kind of found their form on Fragile, including, by the way, the self-indulgent little um, in-between tracks. Everybody had their own little solo track, but they really brightly used them as connective tissue to the songs that they wanted to make the main part of the Fragile album. Fragile is really the album that got me to become a Yes fan. Roundabout is still a song that gives me goosebumps to this day. And then in the 2003 release, they do a cover of Paul Simon's America, which they had done since the early days and further showing their love for Simon and Garfunkel. That's right. And that cover is moving and it just really blew me away hearing that in the later years you know what's really funny though even though it's at different times and in different ways we both fell in love with the band yes because they're fragile at different times it's kind of cool true 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 so all of this in real time not sitting here talking about it in you know ancient history time sets the stage 
for a high level of excitement. The band has been growing its live following and its live shows. They're already massive here in the Philadelphia area and beginning to become the same just about everywhere. So you might think Close to the Edge is going to be chock full of hits and they're going to become like this super popular progressive band. That wasn't what's happening. And that wasn't what happened. But what did happen, I got to tell you, Chris Squire's bass tone on the song, all the parts of Close to the Edge are amazing. The way he worked with the different feelings with the music and the different parts all the way through. This album was, I got to say, tougher for me as a younger kid because I was so used to the three and a half minute song, the four sure, minute I song, think most the people two are. minute song, and sure. they're throwing out these 18 and a half minute masterpieces at you, and it's like, can I sit still <laughs> this long at the age of 12 and listen to this without moving around? I don't know if I can do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Short Attention Span Theater here on the Imbalance History. With an 8-year-old or a (laughs) 10-year-old. But nowadays, listening to songs like Siberian Katru and Close to the Edge and and you and I, all three songs on the album, which get played in the A to Z and you hear them on classic rock stations when they feature Yes. They're brilliant songs and they're beautiful. And nowadays, I love it when they come on because I will just get lost in the music. Well, Siberian Katru is one part, but there's four parts to Close to the Edge. And I think back in the 70s when this was a new album, when stations would let their DJs go cuckoo crazy, right? You might get a little bit I get up and get down earlier in the evening, and later you might get the second half of In You and I. DJ was feeling particularly artsy. One of those great let's smoke a doobie jams, right? And you flip it over and side two is on it. Man, you are gone by Siberia. You got through, man. I'm all. <laughs> 
they started to be able to take stock of what their audience was and, and just where they were in this progressive rock uncharted territory. And in the middle of it all, they start adding Roger Dean paintings to the cover, which become part of the legend of Yes. Somebody else who we have not mentioned yet is their engineer and producer, Eddie Offord, who was fundamental in their sound. He started out at the bottom. He was just getting his feet wet in the early days with mm-hmm. Yes, and he grew with that band. And yes, ended, he did. Uh, and, and he ended up becoming very instrumental in the prog rock scene as a studio dude and did some marvelous work. At one point, Eddie said... Thank you very much. I've had enough. And he walked away. And I think that Yes was better, more cohesive sounding from album to album when Eddie was in the mix because he reminded them how something did or didn't fit in what they've been doing. And in their progression, he was part of all of it, even as sometimes people came and went. Uh, when I spoke to Steve Howe about that, I remember him saying that he hadn't had contact with them, that there wasn't any kind of bad blood or anything. They just hadn't been in contact. And uh, these are guys who made rock history together. Eddie offered in the studio engineering and helping them to decide, therefore making him a co-producer for much of it, if not all of it. <laughs> the world is very thankful for an Eddie Offord. should do an episode about the eddies eddie offered eddie kramer we'll come up with some others yeah all the behind the scene eddies who made great music <laughs> the helpers of rock and roll the helping eddies it'll be fun i want to make one point if i may before we get out of here today and it's about the content of the current members part of the band yes in my mind the core from those earliest days has been john anderson on vocals Chris Squire on bass. And obviously he can't have that now. Uh, The fans, I could tell you, a good chunk of us wish we'd had that before it was too late for that. Knowing that the two of them talked and had their chance to make peace before Chris died, really, I think, has helped a lot of Yes fans to to move forward and be more accepting of uh, a band called Yes that doesn't have Chris Squire in it. And fans already had to accept a, a certain amount of having a band called Yes without John Anderson in it. And in my mind, anything without both of them is not really truly fully yes and it's no knock on what's going on because i'd pay to see steve Howe play any night what he has is a blank canvas and an amazing palette every night to play all these great songs that he helped to form he's the other guy it's them really those three since 70 and when it is it's at its best The next phase, when we talk more about Yes, will be where they're playing. Places like JFK Stadium here in Philadelphia, the legendary show. And we'll talk about that and how crazy it is for a kid from Philly who was at JFK in 76 to fast forward a handful of years and be serving lunch to Yes with Pierre O'Bear, basically, at the Four Seasons Hotel. No lie. It'll be a good story for when we're in the middle of the 80s. Oh, I can't wait for phase three. What phase are we in? Phase one, Captain. Bio phases. <laughs> <laughs> We're 
sliding into the rabbit hole. So before we do that, first I want to say that it's uh, great to see that uh, that they're doing stuff, that the guys from Yes are doing stuff. The, the band is trying to get back out on the road as things uh, become doable for a band on the road. Uh, Grumpy Old Rick has been on the road. He's uh, touring with his cape and his keyboards and uh, making the rounds, doing some smaller shows, as he's known to do, and, and entertaining, as always, and still one of the funniest men in rock and roll. And this is part of that thing we talked about, the pandemic COVID reality, where bands are starting to find different ways and patterns to tour so that they feel good about it and also are feeling connected to their fans and able to get out to them. So it's a to-be-determined ending on that and on Yes. We've got much more to tell in our story here on the podcast. If you've got something to add about phase one from the beginnings to the edge, you know, feel free to email us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com or hit us up on the socials. We're on Facebook at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. You can hit us on Twitter at Imbalanced Histo or find or, us or find or. us or find us on Instagram at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Signing off from the Dark Duck Studios, I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. This has been Yes on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.